He is called the hero of Argentine journalism as the editor of the Buenos Aires Herald during the dirty war of the 70s and 80s he risked his life to report the kidnappings, torture, and murder of thousands of Argentines by the military government. Award-winning journalist Robert Cox. I'm Maria Hinojosa. This is One on One. Robert Cox, you were the editor of the Buenos Aires Herald you are considered to be really the person who saved so many lives in Argentina during the dirty war. Thank you so much for joining us on our program. No, thank you for inviting me. When you hear that though, when people say, you know what, you in your work as a journalist saved not one or two or dozens, maybe hundreds of lives during the dirty war. Well, how does that sit with you? Difficult to deal with. But at the same time, the most satisfying thing, because that, that's what I realized that our journalism was doing. It was saving lives. That's why it was so important to us. And to go back now, as I have been able to go back and to live in Argentina, we're living there for several months a year, and to find people who stop me in the street and, and, and thank me, and to meet people who were held in this terrible esma, this awful torture and killing, uh, how would you call it, in the center of Buenos Aires. and he, Which is one of the, the most extraordinary developed, and that's one of the things that, as I was reading for this interview, you know, you think of World War II and it was like, well, that was a, perhaps a long time ago. What happened in Argentina was happening in the 1970s, so literally, historically, right around the corner. And it's like, oh my God, how could they be torturing, killing, disappearing people? I mean, did you kind of realize everything yes. that was happening? You did. Not everything. It was impossible to know everything, but I was fortunate in that they arrested me. And unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately for them, fortunately for me, I wasn't taken to one of the places where I would have been tortured routinely and appalling torture and killed, but they took me to what was then the police headquarters, an annex of the police headquarters, and I had a chance to be taken inside, and I, I saw their sign. When, you, when I was taken in, stripped, taken in, the first thing you see is a huge swastika, an enormous swastika, covering so, a whole wall, and underneath Nazi nationalism. And, and Nazi this is, nationalism. what year are we talking about this, when you're arrested? That was in 70, 78. So 1978, in the capital of Argentina, you know, an advanced, modernized mm. country, and in the police headquarters, you have a swastika and Nazi nacionalismo. Yes, exactly. And you actually went to the president at that point. I went to ask to see the president, and I said he should go there with a bucket of whitewash and whitewash that wall. If he didn't, well, I said, what would you imagine would, how a Jew would feel if he was taken there, somebody who was Jewish who was taken there and sees that? And what did he say? Well, he didn't see me that time. I, I saw him on two other occasions, but that time his uh, press, press man, who was a Navy captain, high-ranking naval officer, just laughed and said, he won't do that. And of course he didn't. And that was really the problem in Argentina. He was a coward. If he hadn't been a coward, he could have stopped it. He could have stopped it. This is a time of military dictatorship in a country that knew democracy. 
And in that time, about 30,000 people disappeared, desaparecidos. And you were living it at that moment as a journalist. What made you basically not be fearful in saying, this is what is happening in Argentina. There is a dirty war and this military government is disappearing people. What made you be able to say that without fear? Well, I, I had to find out to begin with. And so as I, 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 had, I was fortunate, first of all, I had owners who were in the United States, newspaper by one of those strange was, was purchased by the United States and they just said, you do your job. And I was also the president of the company, so I could decide to do what needed to be done. So I became a reporter again. I wasn't known at that time. The newspaper was not not well known. It was a small community newspaper for the English. And you were just hearing these stories? You were hearing stories of... Well, I worked as a correspondent too. And so I, I met people. People were so desperate. They were trying to find somebody who would help them. All they wanted to know was where have they taken my, my son, my daughter, my husband, my wife. But the government had said, the military dictatorship had said these people were terrorists and therefore they no, were not someone. they didn't someone's. even do that. These were just non-people. They were just people who were taken away at three o'clock in the morning. They were taken away in, in, in vans. I remember the Swedish ambassador said to me, it's just like the Soviet Union. They were taken there, they were taken away in bread vans, and here they're, they're, it's a very similar type of vans, and they were taken to these places where they were routinely, barbarously tortured, I mean, obscenely tortured, I hear things now. I learned this bit by bit, parcel by parcel, you know, uh, the discovery that uh, where the, you know, this place that looked like a garage was in fact a secret prison and a secret torture chamber that this very handsome, beautiful building in the center of Buenos Aires, close to the major football stadium and in the middle of what is the, Buenos Aires equivalent of the Bois de Boulogne, it's a beautiful Palermo Gardens, is this horrific place where they practice mind control, where they tried to, and where they systematically murdered people by taking them away after they had decided that they were gonna kill them. There's no, no trial or anything like that and they were taken off in planes on, on helicopters and, th and they were doped and then stripped and thrown into the sea. So I explain, take us for a second, Robert, into Argentina, you know, 1975 and 1976, for example. What, everything looked normal, right, but well, no, it wasn't normal. We could tell that things were building up. We actually published the, the numbers of deaths every so often on the front page. It was aware there was a kind of underground civil war going on. Did people call it that, though? I mean, was no, there... No, they didn't. These terms that now that we can use, that you can use... But you had a moment of enormous exaltation on the part of young people, and it was partly, you know, the youth revolution that uh, erupted in Paris and in the United States, and a lot of idealistic young people. And in Argentina, thousands of them were led to their deaths by people who were very, very determined to, to take over the government if they could. I don't think there was any chance of that ever happening, but it, the military were able to terrify people so much Terrorism does terrible things to people. It, it, it stops fear. them thinking. Fear does a lot, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. 
I'm going back next month to give evidence in the trial of the people at ESMA, which is this terrible torture chamber. And, uh, and in this case, it's because of two French nuns that were kidnapped, taken away, the, because we managed to raise a, an outcry about it. The Navy tried to pretend that they had been kidnapped by the terrorists and they staged a, a, photographic, a photograph which we, the, the nuns managed in bad French managed to get the news out that, uh, that they were in fact kidnapped by the, by the Navy. And I'm going back to give evidence in that case. The, the problem at that particular time was that, you know, you, you were, we knew what was happening but we had to be able to put it in the paper in, in, in a way that the military couldn't quite say that and use it as an excuse to close us down or something like that. That was the difficult part of, of it. So you're in Argentina. You're a journalist who's basically been trained in the British school. And suddenly you have a military government that is basically saying what you can and can't write. And as a journalist, you're saying, you know, there are many journalists who said, OK, well, that's the rule of, from the law, the, the government. What did you say? No, we said to them when they called us up and said that from now on you're not allowed to report bodies being found in the street, you're not allowed to report people missing, you're not allowed to report any uh, gun battles. We said, well, put it in writing for us. And they sent it to us in writing, and, but with no signature or anything like that. And so we decided that we would go ahead and report as much as we could because nobody else was doing it. That was one of the reasons it, it was so important. From the very start, one realized that the most terrible things were happening there and the Argentine people were not being informed about it. And so this small newspaper, tiny English community newspaper, English language community with lots of international readers and lots of Argentine readers, and the newspaper had a reputation for telling the truth. They still say it in Argentina. They say it's the newspaper that reports in English what the other newspapers cover up in Spanish. So there was a realization that this was a tradition that we were continuing. And so I went out to, to, to become a reporter again, to find out what was, going, what was actually happening. I couldn't send anybody out to do it. So I'd go to the funerals. And my wife came with me when we went. We heard things like that they're, they're burning bodies at night in the... Oh, you cemetery. have a chilling story about that. There were rumors. There were rumors as, of it. As these things go, that they were burning bodies at night. And you did what a good reporter does, right? Yeah, my wife came with me. And she looks back now and she said, how could I have done it? Because I left the children. You know, she didn't leave the children because there was somebody else in the house too. But, but she was with me on this. It was, you know... The, it was just an extraordinary situation to be in, but it was so important because more and more one realized that if we could get into the newspaper that somebody had been taken away at three o'clock in the morning or something like, if we could get, get the name in and if we could establish a connection that would embarrass the government, that they'd, you know, they'd, they'd gone to school in New York or something like that or they'd gone to France or something like that, that very thing could save a life and one would meet the people afterwards and... They wouldn't dare say anything about it at that time, but now I can talk to people about that. Did you feel, when you were making these decisions to, to put this in your newspaper, did you feel at every turn, I am making an important historical decision at this moment, 
Or did you just say, you know what, I have a newspaper to run, and these things are happening, and I just need to put the facts out there? No, I, I say to myself, I've got to do my job. I've got to pretend that everything is normal. I didn't keep notes. I reported what I reported. I tried to think of as many ways as possible of getting the truth out and also really giving lectures to the military about what they were doing and saying to them, you can't treat these wonderfully courageous women. And I often wonder what would have happened if they hadn't come forward. You know, the maternal instinct. I saw this maternal instinct. They said, we want to know where our children are. That's all we're asking. Where are they? And so I would argue with the generals about that. I said, you're going to lose against them. I mean, trying to you know, get them to see what they it were It was really to. extraordinary that you would actually, because it's as if you, you had the highest beliefs of the military, that if you said, look, people are worried, they're pointing their fingers at you, that they would do the right thing. You, it's like you believe that they would do the right thing. I did to begin with because there had been, you know, military coups in Argentina from 1930 onwards, and I'd lived in Argentina since 1959, and I saw 32 attempted coups against Frondizi, who was finally thrown out, I think, on the 33rd. Many, many coups, and the military were looked upon. There was, you know, I hesitate to say, to say that you were born in Mexico, but they would say, you know, an Argentine revolution is less violent than a Mexican wedding, and that's what Argentines said to them, each other. Now, at the same time, things were happening all that time. There was a, a, a really terrible uh, threat of terrorism. I mean, there were bombs every day. There were kidnappings. There were assassinations. And there was violence from... Uh, when you read about this, it's like, oh, my God. You didn't know if it was... Because you were despised. Oh, yes. And you were labeled... No, I was the voice of imperialism at that time. You, know, was, you were seen from the left and from the right mm. as somebody who was really... an an enemy. Yeah, then I became a communist, you know, a dangerous communist. Uh, but, you know, what I take out of this is the importance of journalism. You can't imagine what it's like to live in a country where people are not being told what's happening, because the military, you see, could control television. They could control radio. They couldn't control the newspapers. But the major newspapers, with some exceptions, decided to go along with the military. And in some cases, to the very end, believing that what the military doing was doing was right. This is a term that uh, I think now more people in the United States um, have come to understand, desaparecido, the disappeared. Tell us what happened, because you lived through this, when all of a sudden, in, the, in your offices of a newspaper, people are then showing up. Yeah. What happened? What did it look us. like? Well, the first thing that happened was I didn't realize to begin with that the desaparecido, the idea of disappearing people, I mean, making them non-people, killing them, and then disposing of their body in such a way that they would no longer exist, taking away their very existence, their independence. I didn't realize that until I, I... By then, I'd become important in Argentina. I was no longer a little fly that you could squash. You know, I was a bigger fly. And... For some reason or other, Videla, who was a the president. the president, the dictator, mm -hmm. although he was a very shy man. And to begin with, people loved him. They called him the Pantera Rosa, you know, the Pink, the Panther. Pink Panther, you know, because he was a funny sort of, you know, like that. He was very military in his way. And for some reason or other, he invited me with just three other journalists to talk to him. Like we're talking now in an annex, not in a big office or anything like that. We talked. It was very pleasant, and he wore a civilian uh, suit. He's very pleasant, very nice. 
And I sat there, and while these other people asked questions, and I thought, I just can't go on anymore. I said, but President Videla, people are still disappearing. With that, he changed. And then, unfortunately, the most, you know, an admired journalist broke in and said, well, you have to realize, like Julius Caesar, there are times when there are things that you have to do that you have to do, and you can't talk about them. So from that moment on, I realized that this was, it was a policy of disappearing. So what we were trying to do was to break the silence about it, because people denied it. I had people who came down from the United States, people who'd been living, Argentines who'd been living abroad, they'd come to me and say, I went to Plaza de Mayo. And this is true, it, it sounds impossible, but you're in a, 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 a mad situation in Argentina at that time. He said, but I went to the, the square, Plaza de Mayo, and I asked a policeman, where are the mad de Plaza de Mayo? They call them then las locas, the, the mad the women. The crazy women. And the, the, he said, and the, and, and the policeman told me, there's no such thing. He said, why are you publishing all this stuff? I mean, you, and we had, you know, readers who stopped their subscription. Now, at the same time, we built up a readership of people who realized that we were the only newspaper that was consistently doing its utmost to, to warn, first of all, the military that what they were doing was just absolutely unacceptable from every point of view, because there was, they never thought for a moment of putting people on trial. And only recently did I discover that they'd never even worked out exactly what they were going to do, because... They hadn't worked out. They just thought you could dispose of people. And one of their civilian advisors told me, well, what you do with terrorists? Because the word terrorists, they became none people. Everybody became a terrorist who was opposed to the government. What you do with them is you, they're like stones. You pick them up and you drop them into a bottomless well. It was unbelievable now to, to believe that people could think like that. But very educated people did think like that. Except, of course, I now know why what happened in Germany happened, because I lived through a very similar situation in Argentina. And what is it? I mean, is it, is it that people, decent, educated people, put blinders on? We don't want to see? Yes, exactly that, exactly that. They, they refuse to see what they don't want to see. And if you don't have newspapers, if you don't have the media telling you it's happened, you can believe it's not happening, even if you see it with your own eyes. What do you think gave rise to the fact that all of this could happen? Was it fear of the other? Was it the fact that there seemed to be chaos? And, and I'm just wondering as you, because now you live here in this country, and with all of this perspective, what kind of stays with you? I mean, all of your stories have stayed with me in a way that is quite profound, just preparing for this interview. But again, you lived through it. So as somebody who is watching the world, are there things that are happening that you're just saying, oh my God, you know, this surgence, resurgence of intolerance, this language of fear, the language of war and terrorists? Yes, very much so. I mean, it, it, one suffers with it. But at the same time, there is such a difference, and I do see this through Argentine eyes. In Argentina at that time, nobody dare talked about it or nobody wanted to talk about it because there were people who really believed it doesn't matter what the military do. It has to be done. And they, they, people were fri frightened. They had every reason to be frightened. And also military propaganda was, was turning you know, pretty bad people into absolute monsters. And of course, later on, the funny thing is, when it's not funny, it's just pathetic and horrific the people who set out to deal with the monstrosity 
of terrorism from the left became themselves monsters, tremendous monsters, who decided that they could decide who lived and died. You know, the use of, of the word courage, and people say you were so courageous in speaking out. Did you, did you realize, you know, was every day for you, I'm going to do a courageous act, or where did you find that ability to do what you had to do? And to no, not I just decided I had to do my job, but unfortunately. You were, you were afraid, no? Your family was well, afraid. No, no, I got over it. Yeah, I was afraid, but I got over it. I mean, and this sounds crazy because people never believe me, but it's absolutely true. I went out every day expecting to be killed. And when I got back in the evening, and I wasn't, that's fine. And then I went out the next day expecting to be did killed. Your and wife I lived a completely did, did normal life. Did your wife knew, know this, that you basically were walking out thinking that you could be killed? Yeah, I think she did, but she wa it was difficult because it wasn't until she herself was about to be kidnapped that she realized quite how dangerous. We, I think we both made the same decision that we've got to go on living. Her, her, her point of view was we look after the children, we don't let them know too much. That was why when we got this threatening letter to my 11-year-old son, it was such a traumatic thing because we always kept everything. We lived normal lives. I took the bus to work. Um, they would follow me like in a Hitchcock film and I could laugh and my wife could laugh and we decided we we're going to live a normal life. We're going to do this. We're, Friends deserted us. We'd see friends and they'd cross to the other side of the road. So everybody kind of knew what was happening because you could see it in the streets. These thugs would go through the streets, you know, smashing cars with uh, the butts of their machine guns and forcing, and then you'd see people being lifted up from the streets. But people managed not to believe it because they didn't see it in their newspapers. Of course, they didn't see it on television either. And when you have a, a, a you know, when a government is in power in that way, they ordered up documentaries from one of the people who provide television of violence throughout the world. And they showed those on the, there was just you know, one major channel and it was run by the military at that time. And, and so the idea was to, to give the impression that Argentina was a, an oasis of tranquility in the world while this world, terrible world was full of violence. Even today in Argentina, there are people who don't want to talk about this, don't want to label it the dirty war, don't want to talk about torture and desaparecidos disappeared. And you have other people who's, they're still looking for their children. So can, can Argentina heal, in fact? Yes, I think it can. I, I think that countries come out of these appalling situations, like Germany, but it takes so long. We are now 30 years away from, you know, the end of, well, the start of the horror. It took Germany much longer than that to come to terms with it. And Argentina is now coming to terms with it because the military have been put in on trial. The people who ordered this to happen. And, but what is horrifying is that these people still will not admit what they did. They still argue as if they were fighting uh, a, a, a just a, war. A just war. Yes, they actually say that. A war for Christianity. The other problem is anti-communism. You know, this was, they, they believed they were fighting the Third World War against communism. And they did not know themselves, I believe, that they were Nazis. The other problem, too, the, the, the Argentine military was trained by the Germans, traditionally so. And so they had this 
Nazi mentality, and they used Nazi methods. In the year 1976, yes. 77, 78? It's pretty horrifying. It's horrifying to know that it can happen all over again, that it happened in... Argentina is a country that is very similar to the United States. In its, it's an immigrant country. It's, it's every nationality in Argentina. People get on well, pretty well, and this happened. And uh, it means it can happen anywhere. So what is the lesson, Robert Cox, that you, you feel all of us need to heed, again, after you lived through a dirty war that actually happened in front of your face? What, what is the message to us? How should we live our lives? The important thing is honest journalism, I think. I mean, in Argentina, you had no journalism at that time. And to, to live in a country without journalism, without people being able to talk to each other all the time. So fighting for a free press. Oh, that's tremendously important. And? And decency. You know, for, let's talk about human rights and human decency. Because what was lacking in Argentina was human decency. And I think we might be losing human decency in the United States by the way people talk, by the way they, they characterize people. Uh, I am all, all in favor of, of uh, you know, the most strong language that you can use, but not language that is, is seems to be, you know, targeted language where, where you, 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 you realize that people are being, I mean, if, if somebody's looking at some of the things they see, they might feel that, you know, it's okay to go out and get a gun. Robert Cox, for, for all of your work in the name of journalism and in the name of human rights for all, we really want to thank you for everything. And we're so glad that you're here and that your family is safe. And thank you for, for everything that you have done. And thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for being here. It's important, I think, to have programs like this. Continue the conversation at wgbh.org slash one-on-one. -on -one.